Welcome to tape number 16 of the series What We Catholics Believe. This tape is about ecumenism, among other things. I'd also like to thank you for being so patient and listening with me, because this is, as I say, the last tape, number 16 in the series. And I would like to explain that what I've been talking about on these tapes are not my mere opinions, or indeed any other human thinking, but the truths revealed by Almighty God himself. I think just because it's such an amazing fact, we often fail to appreciate how astonishing it is that the almighty, mysterious God, the creator of the whole universe, actually became one of us and lived on this planet for 33 years. If we ever had a visitor from outer space who asked us what was the most important thing that happened in the history of our planet, we would have no hesitation in telling him that by far the most outstanding thing was the incarnation. God being made man and living among us. It's the most wonderful mystery that has or ever could happen. One we should remember and thank God for every day. Indeed, the church expects us to. The prayer of the Angelus, which describes the angel coming to Our Lady, and her answer, when asked if she would be the mother of God, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And then, the quotation from St. John, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, which we say on our knees, just because it is so wonderful. The Church likes us to say the Angelus three times a day. First thing in the morning, six o'clock if we're up, at noon, and then again in the evening, about six o'clock. It does keep it in mind that we are living after the Incarnation. We are enjoying the fruits of the Incarnation. And nothing is more important. When I say the Angelus, I'm sometimes tempted to say, the Word was made flesh and dwells amongst us. Because God didn't just visit us. He came, and he came to stay. He is still with us. He's living in his church, his body on earth, preventing it from teaching error. And he's been doing that continuously from the beginning. I know you're sometimes told by people who are not Catholics, and who probably believe it to be true, that the church went wrong very soon after the time of the Apostles and didn't get put right until about the 16th century or 17th century. Well, if that were true then Christ failed. And obviously, he's God. He couldn't fail. No, his church has taught the truth with his help from the time he was living on earth right down till today, 2,000 years. He is living there in his church. He's also living in the Blessed Sacrament on the altar to be our living sacrifice to God and to be our spiritual nourishment. Make it possible for us to lead good lives and reach heaven. 
But what we've been talking about, of course, are the truths that he revealed and put into his church. Now, any religion founded by a man, no matter how high-sounding and well-meant, cannot be dealt with or thought about on the same level as the Catholic faith, which teaches the truth revealed by God, and which is now entrusted to his church and protected by him from error. We are very privileged to belong to this church. We should thank God for that privilege. But we should also remember it puts a lot of responsibility on us. Because as Jesus himself warned us, those to whom much has been given, much will be required. Now these precious truths are the ones you're hoping to pass on to your children and to others who you come across. And the truths we've been talking about and the other truths that I haven't covered that you can find out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church will inspire them to real devotion. See, I find it difficult to see a difference between devotional books and doctrinal books. Some people divide them up. But really, when you're learning more doctrine, when you're learning how wonderful God is, you're inspired to devotion. The two things go together. Knowledge about holy things directs the will to love them. And the two work in unity. Now, it's very important to try at least and give this knowledge to your children. Especially in today's age. It's only knowledge of the true faith that will protect them from lapsing. Most youngsters and older people who lapse from the faith, it's not really out of malice. It's through ignorance. If they knew the faith in all its beauty and truth, they wouldn't want to leave it. So you can prevent the lapsing, move in before it even happens, by teaching them the faith. It will also protect them from the evils in society, which have, I suppose, seldom been worse. And from what is happening, sadly, more and more, conversion to other faiths. We meet Catholics now, born into Catholic families, who have become Muslims, or Mormons, or Baptists. And again, good people, doing it for the highest motives, because they haven't been given the truth that their own church teaches. They chase after the bits of truth in these other faiths, and they're lost to the church, and they're lost to truth. It will also protect them from the evils of new age, which is becoming obviously more and more of a threat. New age has been described by Cornelia Ferrara as the kingdom of Satan in the world. It can be a very dangerous thing to belong to. It will protect them, and this is rather sad, but it has to, from the dissent within the church. Unfortunately, these days, now the church is in crisis, 
they will hear dissent in the pulpits, in the Catholic school classrooms and colleges, when they go on retreats. And the only way you can protect them is to make sure they know the truth. Then they will listen critically. And they will accept everything that fits in with the truths they've been taught. And they will know enough to reject the dissent that doesn't fit in with the truths. And also, again, sadly, it will protect them from the false ecumenism, which is so fashionable these days. Now, all Catholics are in favour of ecumenism, true ecumenism. Of course, we should be one. The Lord wanted us to be one, and it makes sense. We're all his people, all his children. The truths are the same for everyone. We should be united. When the apostles, the first church, first priests in the church, the first bishops, were sent to go and teach, they were given one set of truths on doctrine and morals to teach. And there's no room for any variations. Truth doesn't belong to us. It's God's truth. None of us can change it. So although we're all pressing for unity and longing for unity, the unity must be in truth. Because unity is no substitute for truth. Truth is the pearl of great price, valued above all else. If we have to hold on to that at the expense of unity, we hold on to the truth. It's very sad that there are people, good people, who belong to other faiths. And even more sad that there are other Christians, and again, very good Christians, whose forebears broke away from the one true church to set up other Christian bodies, now numbered in thousands, and who don't belong to the true church. It means we have to take care when using the word Christian. I think you could say that all baptised people, everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their saviour, is a Christian. But you can't go a lot further than that. There are, no, there are many Christians who believe all sorts of different things that we couldn't possibly accept. And there's no Christian church, as Hilaire Bellot pointed out, with a list of beliefs and authority. It doesn't exist. So Christian, the word Christian, can cover all sorts of beliefs and morals, and it can be misleading to use it. It's safer to use the word Catholic, and you've got one set of belief and morals. Well, we think it's a little bit like if we were asked to describe ourselves. We could start off saying, well, I'm a mammal. That is true. But there are a great many mammals who are very different from us. It would be much more exact to say, I'm a human being who, of course, is also a mammal. And it's the same with the church. If you say, I'm a Christian, you might believe all sorts of various ideas, quite sincerely. If you say, I'm a Catholic, that's far more exact. Then people know exactly where you stand. Now, as I say, it's very sad to have people of different faiths, good people, people of different Christian denominations. And ecumenism is an attempt to put these things right. The only way to do it, of course, is to proclaim the whole truth. Clearly, honestly, 
and lovingly. We're not going to get unity by convergence, as some well-meaning people say. Convergence would mean compromising on the truth. Bodies that teach contradictory beliefs can't converge, not without one of them sacrificing one completely. We're going to keep our integrity. We don't converge. We proclaim the truth. I remember years ago hearing on the radio two of the Protestant bodies that were coming to be united. And they were very happy about this unity and they were being interviewed by somebody on the BBC. And the interviewer put it to them that you do disagree on some quite important points. I think he listed them. So one of the people, uh, the Christians looking for unity, said, oh, if those points separate us, they will have to go. It's the unity we want. Now, no Catholic could ever say that. We would never put unity beyond truth. We worship truth. Truth is Christ. Put unity before it, you're putting something before Christ. So the truth is the key to ecumenism, true ecumenism. And to proclaim it, we need to understand it. We need to love it, too. And we need to love our neighbour, to care enough to put him in the picture. Now, if it's going to be taught clearly, that's essential, then that means no ambiguity. That's where the archic documents let us down. They talked about various truths, but they very cleverly used words that could be understood in different ways by different people. So that people who were Catholics and people who were not Catholics and who had quite opposing views were able to interpret them in their own way and sign the documents. Now that gets us nowhere. In fact, it's counterproductive. They must be proclaimed Clearly, without ambiguity. And honestly, you can't make omissions in the truth that's been given to us. You can't decide to play down something, to be tactful. You can't be economical with this truth. Because that amounts to lies and misrepresenting it, which would be very wrong. So it's got to be complete, honest and clear. And of course, perhaps most important of all, loving. We need to love our neighbour so much that we want him or her to share the wonderful truths which so delight us. You have to realise, most non-Catholics are not in a position of saying, well, I've studied all that, I know what Catholics say and I've rejected it. They don't. Most of them have only read books about the Catholic Church that have been written by Protestants who don't really understand what we're saying or what our position is on all sorts of subjects. I remember when Scott Hahn, the well-known Presbyterian convert from America, was over here. He told me that out of curiosity he used to read books about the Catholic Church while he was still a Presbyterian. But they were all books written by other Presbyterians giving 
their point of view, what they thought the church taught. This he didn't realise. He thought he was getting the true picture, and he dismissed the church. It wasn't until he looked at a book written by a Catholic that he understood how misled he had been for all those years. And it is a question of misleading. There's no evil, no malice. It's just nobody has told them. And that may be your job or your children's job. I think we ought to keep in mind the little verse from Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems to man to be right, but which leads to death. Now, I'm not saying their mistakes will lead to death. God is too just for that. But things can seem right which are not right. I think it helps to proclaim the truth to explode a few of the myths about ecumenism. People think it's very nice to say that these man-made faiths show aspects of God's truth which is not revealed by him to his church. Now that is not true. Of course they have aspects of truth. They wouldn't attract anybody if they didn't. But these are some of the truths that we teach, that were revealed by Christ. There's nothing new which Jesus forgot to tell us. And he did say, teach everything I have revealed. So we're not going to learn new truths from other man-made faiths. We're also taught to respect other faiths, and that sounds very nice. But I think it's a mistake. All right, we must respect the people of other faiths. And so we should. Many of them deserve a great deal of respect because they're very holy, very good, put us sometimes to shame. So we can have respect for them. But we never respect false teaching. We can learn from the good examples individuals give. But we don't want to and we can't. Learn from their errors. Also, we're often told, and this one's very popular, there is so much more that unites us than divides us. Well, is there? Work it out. Think about it a bit. What unites us? All right, we all agree, all Christians, that God is Trinitarian. We all agree that Jesus lived. Well, everybody has to. There's so much historical evidence. But even the theology of the Trinity will vary in different bodies. Even the Orthodox Church, who are the closest to us in doctrinal matters, has a different theology of the Trinity from the Catholic theology. But you can't go a lot further than that. I suppose, be kind to your friends, love God. But what we disagree on is so numerous, I can't list them all, and it's so fundamental. Not all non-Catholics accept the divinity of Christ. You'll find some who do, but they can't speak for the whole church. Nor do they accept the teaching on grace that the Catholic Church gives, beautiful teaching on grace. They don't accept our Lord's virgin birth. 
or the authority and infallibility of the Pope. And of course the real presence, which was denied by the reformers, is not accepted by all non-Catholics. Models are not always the same. Non-Catholics teach that contraception is fine, that divorce is real. After a divorce you can marry and be really married to someone else. The Catholic Church does not teach that. It teaches that contraception is always gravely wrong. And so is abortion. Abortion is murder. And that divorce doesn't exist. Marriage is indissoluble. You'll think of more. The differences between us are many more, I'm afraid, than the similarities. And we must be honest about these things. Also, there seems to be a feeling that people will be put off by the full truth. If we give them everything we believe, especially things about our Blessed Lady, for instance, they'll take fright. Now, I don't think that's true. For one thing, we can't teach part of our truth. It doesn't hold water unless we give it as a whole, a beautiful harmonic whole it is. And for another, truth has its own power. We were all made for truth, everybody on the planet. People recognize it, respect it. So these truths can be given completely, as long as they're given lovingly and with real understanding. And the people who give them are ready to explain them. And explain that's why we live by these truths. So when you teach others, when you teach your children rather, you may be well teaching them something they can pass on to others by this knowledge. Also, if you understand your faith, you can account for it. You can explain that's why you live the way you do. Children still at school could explain to their school friends why they go to Mass every Sunday. And later on, why they lead chaste lives. Married couples can explain why they don't use contraception. As long as they understand it all, they can justify it to themselves and to others. So knowledge is really the key. And not false ecumenism. Indeed, false ecumenism has given ecumenism a bad name. You get people who won't have anything to do with ecumenism because they've been put off by the truth that they've seen distorted. And you get people like Alice Thomas Ellis, who wrote very amusingly about ecumenism. It seems to mean taking something strong and pure, mixing it with something weak and polluted, sloshing it about a bit, and then watching the churches empty, and congratulating yourself on your progress which is a bit cruel, but I can see what she means. False ecumenism will empty our churches. It's very dangerous. And some of the dangers are in things that look innocent enough, like mixed Bible study discussion groups. Now, the way that non-Catholics read the Bible and treat the Bible is quite different from the way Catholics do. They believe that each one of them can interpret it themselves. That's why they've splintered into so many thousands. Catholics read the Bible in the light of the church's teaching. So there's going to be problems. And if you're going to correct what amounts to heresy, you're going to look arrogant. 
It'll look as if you're putting yourself up as being cleverer or even, and this is worse, holier than your non-Catholic friends. Of course you're not. Many of them will be cleverer than us. Many of them are holier than us. The difference is you're a Catholic. You have access to the church's teaching. The teaching is cleverer and holier than anything they can concoct for themselves. Not you or me or any Catholic. But unfortunately, if you're going to be honest, keep your integrity, you're going to end up looking arrogant. You do more harm than good, I think. You haven't got the situation where you can prove why you're saying what you're saying. So it's best not to start Bible study groups. Praying together too can lead to problems. I couldn't help noticing that when the Pope had his ecumenical meeting at Assisi, he arranged for the differing beliefs to pray separately. And he was quite right. That was the only way to pray. And other people who belong to other religions who are really genuine in their beliefs will understand that. Do you remember at Cardinal Hume's funeral? The chief rabbi was invited, of course, to Westminster Cathedral. He'd been a friend to Cardinal Hume, had a great respect for him. But he couldn't in conscience attend a requiem mass. So he came and he sat in Archbishop's house all the way through the mass to show his solidarity, but to keep his integrity. Now, I respect that. He had the courage of his convictions. So should we. Also, of course, and this is the most important perhaps of all, Protestants should never preach to a Catholic congregation. It's against canon law for one thing, and it can do a great deal of harm and give scandal. I heard of one Protestant minister who was invited to speak to a Catholic congregation at a Sunday Mass during the Unity Octave. He spent the whole time explaining why he wasn't a Catholic and he obviously had a great many ideas that were completely false about the church. But because he was in the pulpit and they were in church, nobody could stand up and correct him. They felt too inhibited. And when he finished and got down, well, the faithful Catholics among them must have felt very, very discouraged. Protestants can talk to Catholic audiences, of course, but in a parish hall where there can be questioned and where there can be discussion and things can be explained. Never in a church. And I think I have to say a word or two about the evangelical Protestant program called Alpha. Because it's becoming fashionable to use it even in Catholic parishes. Now, unfortunately... Alpha contradicts Catholic teaching on many important points. I can't go through them all on this tape, there isn't time, but there are other tapes available on this and there's literature on it. But just to mention one, Alpha does not allow the unique importance of the Catholic Church. And that contradicts Pope Paul VI's encyclical Evangelium Nutanti, which tells us the church must be part of the whole process of evangelization. We cannot separate evangelization from Christ in his church.
So if you have a scheme that doesn't accept the one true church, it's not a scheme for Catholics. Indeed, the best ecumenism is probably our own lives, our conversation, our behaviour. Teaching your youngsters the truths of the faith. Showing them what a wonderful God it is we worship. What a marvellous church we live in. I know, I know the church isn't perfect. At least not all the members are. We have sinners, we've always had sinners. But these are faults in individuals. Not in the institution itself. Or of course in the teachings of God's church. They can't be anything but wonderful. And of course to keep in your youngster's mind the great destiny that's awaiting all of us. Now these truths, once they're accepted and believed, will inspire them to lead good, prayerful and joyful lives, which will in turn inspire others who know them. I think too that teaching anybody will help you, the teacher. Parents and teachers are fortunate because we have to meditate on these wonderful truths. Other people can think, oh, shall I do a meditation on the Trinity or shan't I? If you're giving a lesson on the Trinity, you give it a great deal of thought. And as well as helping your listeners, you're helping yourself by doing that. And you come to realise how beautiful the truths are. And what a wonderful harmonic whole they make, if none of them are omitted and distorted. At least, that's what I've found over the years. And in preparing these tapes, which I must say, have been a great joy. I hope they will be some help to at least some of you. Now we come to the 15th and last Mystery of the Holy Rosary. This is the coronation of Our Lady in Heaven. I do hope you will say the rosary in your home, with your family if possible. It's been given to us by our Heavenly Mother, because like all mothers, she knows what's best for us. Father Thwaites, the holy Jesuit priest, who has done so much to promote the rosary, likens it rather beautifully to a child sitting on his mother's knee while she shows him the family photo album. We are with Our Lady, and she is saying, Look, there is Jesus when he was just born. Here he is at twelve years old. This shows him carrying his cross. And so through all the fifteen, until finally, this one shows my coronation when I reached heaven. A promise of the joys in store for all who love and serve God. Now, the coronation of Our Lady is not mentioned in Scripture directly. So we draw on tradition, which has always honoured her, the Mother of God, as Queen of Heaven. We know she was carried up to Heaven by the angels. And then she must immediately have been filled with the indescribable joy of knowing God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, 
directly. That's a joy that everybody who reaches heaven feels. But it was greater for her than for any other saint. Because the amount of grace in her immaculate heart made her capacity to enjoy God so much greater. Then one can imagine the greetings with all the holy people she'd known and loved in her life. St. Joseph, her parents, St. Elizabeth, St. John the Baptist, St. James, the apostle who'd already died, St. Stephen, of course. And then her divine son, who promised when he was on earth that he would reward those faithful in little things with responsibility over bigger things, must have given her, who had been so faithful to the tremendous task she was asked to do, to help in the incarnation and redemption of us, of all of us. He would be giving her limitless responsibility. That's why we call her refuge of sinners, light of the grave, health of the sick, Comfort of the afflicted, mirror of justice, help of Christians, seat of wisdom, cause of our joy, and so on. That's why she is Queen of Peace, Queen of Martyrs, Queen of All Saints, and even Queen of Angels, though angels are a higher order of beings than humans. <coughs> So Mary, the mother of God, the proudest boast of our race, has been made Queen of Heaven. We are indeed fortunate children to have so powerful a mother. We must keep close to her and always follow her guidance. That's why we will now complete our rosary with the 15th mystery, the coronation of Our Lady in Heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of your mercy. When we finish saying the rosary, or any part of it, we usually say these two prayers. The first one is to our Blessed Lady, and the second one is to God the Father. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in the veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious Advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, Show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. O God, whose only begotten Son, by his life, death and resurrection, has purchased for us rewards of eternal life, grant we beseech thee, that meditating upon these mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we may both imitate what they contain and obtain what they promise, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Finally we end by making a sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for your kind attention. As I say, I hope these talks have been some help to start you on the path teaching your children the faith, and teaching others the faith. May God bless you all.